Hello, this is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to the One and All Wisdom Podcast. Today I want to tell you that even out here in the deep forest, I have been listening to what is happening among us right now. I am listening. I'm listening to the sounds of people in the street marching. I'm listening to the silence of old people sheltering in place. I'm listening to governors and mayors and police chiefs and citizens of all sorts, wearing badges and turbans and t-shirts and hiking boots, and to those carrying Bibles and those carrying torches. I'm listening to intensive care nurses in hospitals around the world and to the sound of ventilators breathing artificially. I am listening to those who are walking, taking a knee, lying in the streets, being taken off to jail or to hospital or to morgues. I am listening occasionally, thankfully, to the call of hawks circling overhead, to the rustling of tree leaves in the wind. And I am listening to countless shopkeepers telling their employees they are all being let go and to the voices of those employees saying, Oh, Lord, how will I pay my bills? I'm listening on the phone to my young grandson's glad voice describing his latest drawing. I'm listening to the sounds coming from the television, the radio, the podcast, the Zoomcast, the voices in my head. I am listening to those giving voice to greed and their endless quest for power. I am listening to those who feel guilty and those who feel victimized and to the uninformed and the ill-informed and the misunderstood and to those who are wakeful at 3 a.m. wondering what to do what to say, how to understand, how to be a good ally, how to make right out of so much wrong. I am listening to my friend singing a medicine song. I am listening to things bubbling up from the voices of those I've learned from long ago and to my own memories and to the sound of my own heart, steady Steady, steady. I am listening to humanity and to the cosmos expanding, resonating. That's a lot, right? A lot to listen to. I waited a long time to speak out again on a podcast because we all had so much to listen to already. Listening, I've long said, is a spiritual practice, and it takes practice. And that's what I've decided to make this podcast about, the practice of listening and interpreting and responding. Many of us, I'm afraid, maybe most of us, are usually so busy trying to create and tell our own individual stories about who we are that we don't always listen, really, to others especially those whose experience is different from our own. But with so much to listen to right now, 
there are particular voices raised urgently, demanding that their unheard stories be listened to, their stories about social injustice, about inequality, about black lives mattering. It is, of course, imperative that any of us who are not black listen to them, to bear witness, to recognize their experience and their attitude toward their own experience. And it's important that none of us, while listening, insist upon interrupting to insert our own stories instead of theirs, needing to be heard ourselves, explaining or justifying or denying or disagreeing. We just need to listen. And so I'm not here today to tell my story, though I do want to give you my point of view about listening itself. I will have some stories in the next few podcasts I have planned. I'll have several stories to tell, not mine, but important stories about some other people. Stories that I chose because they have to do with listening and responding, and because they give examples of my own point of view about that. Every storyteller has a point of view. Every one of us has a point of view. And it's important to to know what it is as we listen to the stories that are being told. I learned that from my high school English teacher, Ms. Chisholm. Lately, I've realized that what she taught me way back when, in an earlier stage of the civil rights movement, that what she taught me feels remarkably relevant right now, as I and we all struggle in our various ways to meet this moment that we're all in. So I want to share with you some of what I remember of what she taught me. Ms. Chisholm was my teacher all four years of my high school experience in a small-town rural school in East Texas starting in 1954 when I was a freshman. 1954, incidentally, being the year the Supreme Court ruled on Brown v. Board of Education stating that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. Ms. Chisholm was my teacher again in 1955 when I was a sophomore, the year Rosa Parks, an African-American bus passenger, was arrested after refusing to give up her bus seat to a white passenger in Montgomery, Alabama. Ms. Chisholm was my teacher again in 1956, the year, <laughs> the year IBM introduced the first giant computer hard drive so big it filled up a room and the year the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation on buses was unconstitutional, reaffirming that segregation laws violated the 14th Amendment and that separate but equal was no longer an accepted doctrine of U.S. law. And in 1957, the year I graduated from high school, the year when a global flu pandemic claimed over 150,000 lives worldwide. The same year, Arkansas governor called out the National Guard to prevent nine African-American students from entering Central High School in Little Rock. And two days later, Republican President Eisenhower ordered federal troops to escort the students to school anyway, and those troops had to use fixed bayonets to hold off white protesters who opposed desegregation. 
Now, I know that many black people are telling stories about all that right now from their perspective, as I cannot, not being black, about how terrible and terrifying and unjust things that happened back then were. I listen to their stories with deep respect. But in this little podcast, I'm just trying to frame for you what was going on back then when my teacher, Ms. Chisholm, gave us that good advice I mentioned. In Texas, where I live, desegregation in public schools was just getting underway, and there was much controversy and debate about what we were hearing on the radio, on TV, and in the press, about what was true and untrue, right and wrong, just and unjust. Everybody had an opinion, it seemed, even my classmates and me, and some of us were busy arguing hotly about it, especially in Ms. Chisholm's class, where she encouraged and honed our thinking. I still can go back in my mind to many of those discussions and the things she taught us. They were so important in the charged atmosphere of the time that they have stayed firmly in my mind all these years, and so I can recall them today. And what Ms. Chisholm told us in our classes where we discussed all this was, first, that we must not believe everything we heard or read, not without verifying the facts. And also, she said, facts, as presented, are never the whole story, that even facts can be presented in a variety of ways to say different things, can be willfully misrepresented, just as they can be suppressed. She said that context matters, that we need to be aware of context if we are to get the real story. And she said, to get the context, we must be diligent in peeling back and back and back layers of information, of history, of viewpoints, and and of perspectives, always in search of a broader and deeper truth that takes in more and more and more, not just one point of view. That, she said, is what it means to be educated, to be informed, to be a good citizen. And never, she would say emphatically, never jump to conclusions based on unexamined assumptions. She was always after us about our assumptions. Assumptions, she would say with a sort of disgust. Assumptions we go around with in our heads all the time glaring at one of the other of us, whom she probably had overheard gossiping or giving our opinions freely about some new student or something. She would insist that when we meet new people and new situations and new information, we come to it with our heads already full of assumptions, assumptions that had been formed usually by unexamined and unverified information, likely misinformation. With a head full of assumptions, we just jump right into making judgments, judgments that can be incorrect, damaging, dangerous. How easy it is for me today to see in myself and in so many others on all sides of every issue how our preconceived ideas and our automatic assumptions destroy our ability to listen, to understand, and to grow wiser together. I distinctly recall asking my teacher how we can avoid having assumptions. You can't, she said flatly. 
you have them. Like it or not, you all have assumptions all the time. But if you know that you already have them, you can keep that in mind. And you may slow yourself down long enough, pause long enough, to examine your preconceptions, your assumptions. And then you can approach a new situation, she said, not only with what you already know, but also, if you're open-minded and open-hearted, you can have a chance to have a new experience, to grow, to learn, to be wiser, to be more effective. Being open-minded, curious, self-reflective, being careful about being judgmental, these were the tools for being a good citizen, she said. Judgments we must continuously make, of course. We need to choose one thing or another, one way of believing or acting over another. But she wanted us to practice looking carefully with an open mind at all paths open to us. Needless to say, she made us memorize Robert Frost's poem, Two Roads Diverged in a Yellow Wood, and sorry I could not travel both. I stood and looked down one until it bent in the undergrowth, and then took the other, as just as fair, but having perhaps the better claim, and so on and so on. Two possible paths, two ways to go, but we have to choose one and not another and see how it turns out. Or we may look down Robert Frost's two roads and decide that they are not equally fair, that one is actually more dangerous than the other, or less just than the other, and we choose our actions on that basis. She was not recommending, mind you, that we be passive observers, paralyzed by looking at all sides. No, she urged us to care deeply about things. During one of those years in the late 1950s, some national surveys showed that most young people did not care passionately about anything, and Miss Chisholm was appalled about that. So what she was teaching us was to use our listening and analyzing skills to inform our actions, to allow us to engage intelligently and responsibly and successfully with the problems of our world. And on the question of how we can act responsibly for what is right and just, based on our best information and judgment at any given time, with an open mind, and with an open heart? That's the great question, she said. And how we navigate those waters, that's what determines our character and determines our fate. And if we insisted, we in her class, insisted on discussing our opinion that something was just wrong or evil, she would say quietly that good and evil are slippery concepts at best, so we should try to use other words, she said, like just or unjust, fair or unfair, workable or unworkable, legal are illegal, instead of evil, if we ever wanted to convince anybody of our opinion. She was our English teacher, after all, and how we expressed ourselves 
In order to be heard and understood, it was her job to teach. And then she would give us some assignment to read and analyze and discuss, remembering all that advice and good guidance. Her strong, wise voice has stayed with me all my life, as I said, and in general, I have desired to hold to its point of view about most things. I hope many of us today can follow that advice. I hope that people, when so many dramatic things are unfolding daily, can take the time to be concerned about what is just and equitable and to be concerned about context. I hope we can all take time, all of us, but certainly our police force, not to act on preconceived notions of what someone is doing. I hope we can take time to analyze more than the obvious and even more than the facts to get at backstory and history as we today wrestle with those same issues that were coming into prominence back then during that part of the civil rights movement. Slippery issues of ethics, responsibility, character, and justice. Sadly, so many people today seem to be busy advancing their own agendas, whatever those may be, without taking the time not only to know all the facts, but to understand them. So, Ms. Chisholm's voice in my head, my own now gray-haired elder's head, tells me that this is one of the most urgent considerations I can bring to our attention now, even here on this and future podcast, because this open-minded, open-hearted, holistic point of view is so necessary now amid the ongoing protest and crisis and resulting national conversations we are all having. Most of us want to be hopeful now, to believe that there is a chance now, a chance that equality may at last be set in place, that social systems such as the police, human services, education, and other public services may be examined, responsibilities reorganized, funding redistributed, judicial systems held accountable, and everything improved. That needs to happen. That must happen for us to honestly reimagine our social contract, our way of being with each other in this national community, holding each other responsible for our actions and holding sacred our lives together, our larger human community, culturally and politically and spiritually, so that we can go forward in a better way. Perhaps, just perhaps, once we do begin to really listen to one another with open minds and hearts, more and more of us listening to each other's stories, and once some of the needed changes are underway, then, and perhaps only then, can we move forward. And when we do, the way forward will absolutely need to include serious commitment by all of us to a broad reconciliation. Even now, as we are in the throes of the protest and the upheaval, before we've attained peace and equity and justice, it is important, I think, to keep in view that commitment to long-term reconciliation. For one thing, because it's probably the only way we can have lasting peace, 
and justice and equity and all the rest. But to accomplish reconciliation, we must first attend to this whole business of peeling back layers and context around prejudicial facts and oversimplifications and assumptions. This whole business of taking into account the vast complexity of our various social perspectives and histories in this nation that is now so fiercely divided by contradictions of ideology, geography, religion, sexual orientation, economic status, education, and race. In this post-Vietnam and post-Iraq War era, when many of us now bring a skeptical, even a cynical attitude toward whatever information we are being given, justifiable as this stance may be, it can preclude our being open-minded, let alone open-hearted, any of us. But thank goodness, in the age of phones with video cameras and computer fact-checkers, in this global information age, we all do have a chance to get more actual facts and to uncover misinformation. And we have access to more backstories, to context, to history. And because of that, I think there is new hope, new possibility, if we all, of whatever persuasion, can be more open-minded and more open-hearted and better informed, I do think there is a possibility for reconciliation. I hear the voices, of course, saying this is not the time to think about reconciliation. We haven't won the battle for justice yet. We can't focus on winning the peace. Hmm, I wonder. I hear Abraham Lincoln's voice echoing still, his voice raised even during the Civil War about the need for reconciliation, for binding up the wounds with malice toward none, with charity for all. Of course, I hear, too, John Wilkes Booth's voice refusing reconciliation, wanting revenge, or his own version of justice done. After Lincoln's death, the new administration did not follow up on Lincoln's plans for reconciliation, and the exhausted, unhealed country was all too soon diverted back into racial violence and further inequity. So, remembering about reconciliation, thinking holistically, even as we work right now to deliver right now equality and justice and all the rest, by all the various means at our disposal that work to make equality and justice universal, and long-lasting, and functional, that is, I think, our task. Formidable, challenging, but I believe doable. During the past weeks, I've gone back in my mind to find examples of how this can work. I came up with so many examples, so many stories, that this podcast just grew and grew and grew too outsized to record or listen to in one sitting. So I decided I had to cut it up into several podcasts, into a series of podcasts on this subject, and I've done so. So today, I'll just stop here with my story about Miss Chisholm and her very 
reasonable and practical advice about listening and informing ourselves and responding. And let this much serve as a sort of introduction to a whole series of podcasts. Join me here next time for a story about a person who understood a lot about all the things we're struggling with today. Many people know about her or think they know about her. Maybe not some of the younger people, but probably few people ever knew the details of her experiences. Her story is complex. Things were told about her that were true, untrue, misconstrued, misrepresented, and so on. But still, she became one of the most powerful and most admired persons during her remarkable lifetime, and she worked endlessly in her own way on the various issues we are concerned about today. So, join me next time here on the One and All Wisdom Podcast to hear that story. This is Glenda Taylor, and join me on the OneAndAllWisdom.com website at any time. Thank you for listening. Thank you.